You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. One of the things, if you know a little bit about me, is I get stuck on a quote. And then I say it to about 25 different people for about three weeks, and then I move on to the new quote or next thing that's on my mind. So you're about to get one that you've probably maybe heard from if you've been spending some time with me the last couple of weeks. But it's this. It's from Alan Hirsch. He says, Jesus' great commission that she gave his disciples at the end of Matthew 28 wasn't for churches to be planted, but disciples to be made. His vision was that we would be and make disciples, not plant churches. Now, Jesus isn't against playing churches, or he's not against church in, in general as a whole. It's his bride. But what the point of that quote is saying is that being and making disciples is our primary goal, which then churches form around. So as disciples are made, churches take up residence. But churches in many places around the world look at in different shapes and sizes, have different seasons and lifespans, but discipleship continues forever until Jesus returns. But even then, we'll get to know from Jesus himself uh, for centuries, right, of what he's like. The reason I say that is because this whole month has been about discipleship. It's been about being and making disciples that are being formed by God together for the sake of others. Like a recipe, if you leave one of those three things out, you won't get the result that you want. If you leave out baking soda when you're making a batch of cookies, you might have a problem or have too much baking soda, but you need a little bit of each. You need to be formed by God together for the sake of others. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been journeying through that. Uh, beginning of January, I was being formed by God, and I challenge you to think about your actions, your affections, your attachments, your relationships, and your awareness of God to be cultivated this year in our midst. That uh, If you think about that picture I gave you of those four words, you could see it as a, um, as a roundabout. There's a beautiful roundabout that's been put in Tempe. It's off of, uh, gosh, it's on the same street as uh, Cartel, if you keep on going north. First, Jonathan lives almost right there now. Uh, but there's a street over there. It's a roundabout. The city's very proud of it, which is great, because before it was horrible to try to get through there. But in a roundabout, you have four different ways on ramps to get into it. Similar way with encountering Jesus, you might encounter him through your affections. You might encounter him through an awareness of his presence. You might encounter him through your actions. It actually, as you're living into the way of Jesus, you get to experience him. Or you might encounter him through the presence of somebody else in relationship. It's like four different on-ramps. There's not one better than the other, and you need all four. But there's four different ways to encounter God. So from those different ways, that was week one. Last week, I challenged us to be together. Discipleship is not an individual project, but a communal one. I challenge you in three ways, if you weren't here. I challenge you to think about how you make decisions in the context of community. Uh, there's a story in this room of something that happened from the sermon last week, not entirely because of the sermon, but that prompted somebody to, to dialogue around a particular thing that they're thinking through, which was awesome, uh, in light of community, to process things together. The second thing I challenge you with was confession forgiveness, that as we confess our sin to one another and we offer forgiveness, that we are offering the very forgiveness of God. Uh, Bonhoeffer makes that point over and over again because you and I are the image of Jesus now as his church and that as I confess my sin to Tim and Tim receives that and forgives me, I am receiving the forgiveness of God, even through an imperfect vessel as Tim would be the first person to admit. So confession and forgiveness is a way for us 
to experience God in the context of community. And there's a third one that's escaping my memory right now that I gave you last week. Does anybody remember? Confession, forgiveness, uh, communal decision-making. Oh, and the sharing of resources and emotions. So the passage here in Romans 12 says that mourn with those who mourn, uh, have joy with those who have joy, and practice hospitality, share with the Lord's people anyone who has need. So I challenged you last week, one of the ways we live together is sharing of our resources. Uh, So someone in this room as well, just before the service, we were talking about how do we together share some of our resources to bless somebody else that's part of our church. Uh, Sharing of our resources where there's a real need. But then also our emotions where we enter into people's sorrow when they have sorrow, but also their joy when they have joy. And like I said last week, you're probably good at one and not the other. You might be really good at entering into people's sorrow and sitting there with them for long periods of time, which is an amazing skill to have. Or you might be really good at entering into their joy and their excitement, but how do you do both? So that's kind of the things I've been leading us in. This week, we're transitioning to for the sake of others, that ultimately the church does not exist for itself. We do not exist for this institution or this organization to become greater and greater, but we exist for the sake of others, those outside of our community. We have a mission. We are missionary people sent as good news in our cities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. So for the sake of others, if you have a Bible, would you turn to Romans chapter 12? I'm going to read through it one more time. Hopefully it's really sticking with you because we've read through the whole chapter the last three weeks. Romans 12, 1 through 21. Let me give you the question up front so as you're listening to the passage, you can be thinking about it. We're going to be focused on the end of Romans 12. I'll give you the context, though and read it, but I'd love for you, after I read it, to go from sermon to lab for a second, to have you get to some people around you, because you're going to hear some really challenging words at the end of Romans 12, of how we live for the sake of others, even those we would consider our enemies, it says here. And the question I have for you is, how do you see this part of the passage, for the sake of others, lived out practically in our lives? So some spheres to think about in your relationships or your family in your workplace and the job that you do, in the city that you currently live in, in your political engagement and our time and moment, and in uh, your neighborhood, maybe on the street that you live on. So let me read Romans 12. Have this in the back of your mind. How does this passage, in a sense, move us out towards others and not just be to exist for ourselves. Romans 12, let me read one all the way through 21, but we're gonna focus on verses 14 through 21. It says this, Romans 12, one. Therefore, I urge you as brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And then Paul says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy. If it's serving, then serve. Teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. 
Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And here's a clue, verse 12. These are gonna be your next three weeks of our sermons. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Okay, so here's what we're gonna focus in. Do not let these words uh, be rote or you be callous to them because think about how hard it is to live into this reality as God's people. Verse 14, Paul, I think, is turning his eyes from inward, how to be among God's people, to outward, how to interact with your city, your neighbor. It says this, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Another way to translate this, do you guys, in your Bibles, if you have a, if you have a written one or a printed one, uh, do you have a note? Can someone read the note that's in the bottom there, verse 16? I think there's a note in some of our Bibles. It's a new... Give yourself, does anybody else have a, another translation? That's great. Humble task. Anybody else have anything else that says? Yes, Deb. Willing to do menial work. Really fascinating. So verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, notice the clarifier here. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That was like an idiom of the day to, you could almost embarrass somebody because of your kindness towards them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word. So let's turn to some people around you. As you look at verses 14 through 21, how do you see this lived out practically in the spaces I listed before? In your political engagement, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your workplace, in whatever context that you find yourself in. Like how does this become concrete? It's really great to talk about bless those who persecute you. Holy cow, is that hard to actually do and think about tangibly what that means. So would you turn to some people around you? We'll dialogue for, you can dialogue with them for the next four to five minutes and then I'll call us back. I would love to uh, have, uh, to call you back for a second or permanently. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. What's, uh, what's an insight maybe you had? Or if you're like, no, this is just too hard. I don't think Paul and maybe Jesus also said the same thing. Uh, really meant what they said, and we need to operate differently. What do you guys think? What were, what were some of the conversations you were having? says if if possible you know to clarify <laughs> well no yeah really good that's like really low level but 
um, real practical because that's, that's real. I pray that for other people that usually get angry at me, but not myself. Uh, anybody else have anything that, they, that came up for them? Or are we just like, no, I, this is too hard. I went over to the kids' classroom, and, I, and they asked, what did you ask over there? Or are you actually, I said, yeah, I'm just coming over here for a second. They're like, oh, yeah, don't, that's a hard question. I don't, I'm glad I'm not in there today. <laughs> Uh huh. And um, how our culture pretty much, um, like, if you're going with the flow, you're not associating very broadly with people that are outside of your yeah. Your oh yeah, yeah. So good. Did you guys hear that? So do it says it says basically associate with lowly people. The other, it's cool that that translation is also um, those who do overlooked tasks, right? Or like think of like. The overlooked uh, in the hospital system, it's the the janitors that come through the rooms. You have the nurses, you have doctors, you have the specialists, but then you have a whole crew of people that come in and clean the rooms in in the middle of all that. They're like invisible people in that system that are overlooked, don't even acknowledged often by anybody in the system. They are the low, like what would it look like to associate with them as a nurse, as a patient, as a parent that's in there, to acknowledge that they're there. Anything else that came up? We were talking about how this at work can help people on this day. That, Just uh, other people out there. Some, yeah, there's people down there. Yeah. Um, it's easy to feel kind of icky. Do you feel justified? Like this person didn't do what they were supposed to do. Right. Clearly. Clearly. Clearly did not. Yeah. So therefore, I can, you know, hold a little bit less. Yeah. Yeah, almost a way to seek revenge or vengeance, right? Well, you didn't actually follow through with your task. doesn't mean there shouldn't be hard conversations or that people shouldn't be held accountable. But yeah, there's a sense of like, yeah, I'm going to now hold that against you. And I'm going to operate as if you owe me. That feels very contrary to the passage here. Uh, last, uh, last Monday, we celebrated as a country Martin Luther King Day. And it usually is the day where everyone pulls out their one Martin Luther King quote of the year and throws it on a coffee mug or some other, tea, I saw some tea bags that have them on this year. Uh, some of them were better quotes than others. Uh, but I find myself uh, drawn towards his work in some form or way every year because of the richness of his ethic of how he saw this passage come to life. Um, if there isn't a better representation of that other than Jesus himself, of what it looks like to love and bless your enemies, to seek peace, if possible, with those who despise you. I think Dr. King modeled that, and he was deeply motivated by, as a pastor, as a Christian, the ethic that Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount, which is what Paul is pulling from here, I think, and then what Paul is saying here in Romans 12. He has a quote, a really simple one, of many quotes that you'll see, but it really embodies this passage, which is, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Like, isn't that the vision of Romans 12? Isn't that the vision of the Sermon on the Mount? And for many on the outside to live into this ethic, it looks like passivity or weakness. To bless those who persecute you or to live at peace looks like weakness to our world. It looks like you being passive. And I'm sure King was accused of that in many ways over and over again. And yet, and yet, the opposite is quite true. That even though it looks ridiculous to the systems of our world, 
It has the power to actually transform and change hearts because it isn't king's ethic. It is the ethic and way of Jesus that he was living into. A couple things I thought of this week, uh, kind of phrases. This isn't to demean or diminish the cultural stories and narratives that we swim in, but to notice how we are distinct people that live for the sake of others. To be for the sake of others is to be distinct, not for yourselves, but so that you might be good news and light to others that are around you. Uh, In a culture that celebrates clapping back in some form or way, whether digitally or in person, we choose to bless our enemies and to listen to those we disagree with. In a culture that capitalizes, as in like money, on division and suspicion, we choose to seek peace with friends and even our enemies. And then this is getting at Stephanie's point. In a culture obsessed with status, following, and influence, like that's what people are driven and are drawn towards, we choose to spend our time with the overlooked and left out. Like, what would it look like to enter into this kind of way of living in our workplace, our neighborhoods? And many of the stories in this room, I think, are exactly this. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense uh, of larger Christian culture within our country of fear of what's going to happen or what's next or what's happening to our country, to use that kind of phrase. And in fear, people do weird things, right? When we're afraid, the fight or flight activates in us. And I don't think Jesus is actually calling for either fight or flight, maybe here. Uh, but interestingly, I think when we're afraid, there's, a, there's in a sense a feeling, and there's many within different cultural tra- uh, Christian traditions that say, hey, it's a time and a season to take up a sword, to in a sense fight back. But I want to go back to that verse, verse 16. Like the vision of 16 is not for you to take up a sword but to take up a towel, to be a servant. The way you, in a sense, fight back as the people of God is not by the sword, but with a towel, to serve those who are overlooked and left out. To take up a towel means that you'll probably not be recognized. You won't have influence or following. You won't make it on the news. You won't be able to have a really clever way to in a sense, clap back at an opponent or an enemy. But to take up a towel is the way of Jesus. Like, uh, this passage is so hard for us to even grasp and recognize uh, to see it lived out. Because everything in us wants to actually say no. In moments of fear, in moments of persecution and hurt, my, what I should do is I should respond back. And they should get what they deserve. But it's not the way of Romans 12. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of God who could have got back at his world but decided not to. Dallas Willard, he says, I think this is so good. A recent book I read of his, you've probably, this is one of those quotes I've probably said about 25 times, so I apologize if you've heard it. Uh, Dallas Willard says, the ultimate mark of Christian maturity is when our flinch becomes to love our enemies. Think about that for a second. Like your flinch, as in your intuition, like your response is when somebody harms you or hurts you in some form or way, your flinch is to love. Man, that is, that is hard work to cultivate in our hearts. There are conversations that we find ourselves in where it would be, oh, you would be, feel so vindicated and rightfully so to say back what that person deserves. 
were to say, hey, how dare you say so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so because A, B, C, D. It'd be so easy in relationships of thinking through the ways people have harmed us and hurt us to say, yeah, this is exactly what you deserve. Or yeah, this is, this is what you've, you reap what you sow kind of thing. But that's not the way of Jesus. That shouldn't be our flinch. And to be really honest, this is, I, I think as we live, to think about being for the sake of others and being in our city, like the only way this is going to happen and be cultivating our hearts is really probably a starting place, which is prayer. Because I don't know about you, but my first flinch is not to respond in these ways of Romans 12. My first flinch when I feel offended or hurt by somebody or someone says something I think is untrue, even if I don't say it out of my mouth, has begun to, in my mind, well, A, B, C, D, I could start building a case as a lawyer against them. Maybe you don't do the same thing. Maybe it comes out in some other way. But it is so hard to respond in this way. And it often feels like passivity or weakness. You're going to be taken advantage of in different ways. You will be uh, manipulated in different ways where people will use things against you. But this is what the call here in Romans 12 is. So I'd love for you to do this. Turn to those people around you for one more time. And I'd love for you just to pray. I'd love for you to pray that God would cultivate in your hearts this year a flinch towards blessing those who hurt you. Now, let me give a qualifier here underneath. There are real situations where you're experiencing hurt, harm, and abuse where you should, be, you should remove yourself from the situation. Absolutely. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's, it's context and wisdom to figure out how to bless your enemies. Boundary, just because you want to bless your enemies doesn't mean you don't have boundaries or understanding of, hey, actually, I'm not going to enter into that relationship or I'm not going to actually enter into that space. But just because you have boundaries doesn't mean that you cannot still love your enemy, that you can step towards them, maybe in a way that's a little bit less conventional, conventional based on the history or experience. So I'd love for you to turn to some people around you. I want you to begin praying that God would cultivate this in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts as a church, that we might be salt and light to our world. Lord Jesus, would you hear our prayers? Would our prayers be the starting place to change, change and transform hearts so that we might look more and uh, we might taste and see and feel what you're like and to express those things towards our neighbors? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to have you stand. All week I've been thinking through how to lead us to the communion table from this passage. In some ways, it's quite easy. In other ways, it's always quite hard to make sure to connect deeply what you're being invited into, into the, from the very life of God. We read this every week. It's from 1 Corinthians 11. Listen to how it starts. It struck me for the first time, maybe ever, in a new way. It says this, On the night that he was betrayed... On the night that he was betrayed. All of us have experienced some level of betrayal. All of us uh, have experienced betrayal in relationship in some form or way. And in some ways it would be right for you to seek vengeance or vindication. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave his disciples. And he said, take and eat. Jesus was broken so that you might be repaired. It says, after he took the bread, he took the cup. And he says, drink this. And you're going to hear it from Jessica and Michaela here in a second. Which has been poured out for you. He was poured out so that you might be filled up. He was betrayed by those that were closest to him, that he had walked with. And yet in his betrayal, he still chose love. He blessed those who hurt him. And so as you come to the communion table, would you receive the great gift of God, who, although could have sought vengeance against you, put his vengeance on his son so that you might have life. And so that now you might not only have life, but extend that life and forgiveness to a watching world that's in deep need of forgiveness and love. And instead of seeking vengeance on your enemy, you can welcome them and embrace and bless them even when they might harm you. And so each week we come to this truth. And not just that he was betrayed, but that he rose from the dead. And so we're going to recite together this mystery of our faith. And Michaela and Jessica are going to serve you the communion meal today. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Come and receive. Come and receive.